I'm sharing during this conference, not in detail about things, but just hitting what I consider to be some of the major points, major things that God has shown me. And so we're going to be covering five of those uh, during this conference. We covered one last night, which was talking against the religious concepts of sovereignty that God controls everything. God does not control everything. And if you believe that, then it renders you passive. And when sickness, disease, poverty, discouragement, pain, sorrow, death of all kinds comes against you, many Christians have been taught to be passive because after all, it couldn't have happened if it wasn't God's will. And that just, you are embracing it. One of the keys to walking in the victory that God has provided is, it says in James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore unto God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You cannot resist the devil if you think that the devil can only touch you if he gets God's permission. Because that means that God is involved in it. And so it renders you passive and Satan just is able to come and destroy people's lives. And like I said earlier, there was a number of people I talked to this morning who just are telling me about what's happened to them as if they have no control over it. I have people come all of the time that are just, you know, it's like I'm pitiful. This is, this is my situation. Could you please help me? It's like I'm, they're just trying to let me know how pitiful their life is. And it just, <laughs> you know, I get in trouble for saying these things, but I'm just telling you how I feel. It just makes me want to, you know, the spirit of slap come all over me. Like, <laughs> what's wrong with you? Why do you let these things happen? And people respond like, well, what do you say? I have no control over whether I get cancer or whether this, you know, I have sugar diabetes. You have control over all of that stuff. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Death and life are in the power of your tongue. Take your tongue and start fighting that thing and resist it. And if you resist the devil, he will fight again. He will flee from you. But most people aren't resisting. It's kind of like, well, what can I do? After all, I'm only human. I'm just a man. I'm not just a man. One third of me is wall to wall Holy Ghost. I've been born again. I'm a changed person. And I guarantee you, I fight, I fight sickness, failure, problems like the plague that it is. And because of it, I'm walking in health and I'm seeing God bless me. And I believe that this works for every single person. And there's just a lot of people that don't know this because again, they have this fatalistic attitude that, well, there must be some reason. Maybe it's because I did something wrong. God's punishing me. God is not the one putting problems on you. What I want to deal with this morning is a similar type of thing, but it's again, still talking about who God is. And I want to try and change some people's impression of thinking that God is this angry God that every time we sin, Sin has to be judged that sure, God can do anything, but if you aren't worthy, God won't move in your life. The average person in here, you may not have had it put in these words, but the average person in here, if you pray and believe God for something and don't see it come to pass, one of the very first things you think is, you know, I'm probably not worthy. I haven't fasted enough. I haven't prayed enough. I, I knew I shouldn't have cut that person off in traffic wave to them with one finger and it's coming back and God won't answer my prayer until I do this or whatever. And we feel unworthy. You know, I gave this example last night about my son who was raised from the dead after being dead for five hours and came back with no brain damage, no more than he had before. 
Praise God. It was awesome. Most of you believe that. But I said that if I was to call on you and say, you come up here and pray for this person who's died, most people who believe God can do it, and you would be excited if I said, I'm going to pray for him. But I say, you come pray for him. All of a sudden, your faith would turn to fear, your excitement to dread. You know why? Because you know that you aren't everything you should be. You don't know that about me. But I can promise you, I'm not everything I should be either. God doesn't answer any of my prayers because I deserve it. But see, we think that a minister, you just suppose that I'm holy and I always do everything right and I don't have any bad attitudes. I don't get anything from God because I do everything right. It's because I've learned how to pray in the name of Jesus and put faith in what he's done. But the reason that you lack confidence in your prayers is because we have this sense of unworthiness and we have been taught this from religion that God is going to give you what you deserve. And sure, God could do a miracle, but you don't deserve it. And you have this, your own conscience condemns you that you aren't worthy. And because of it, it's not that you doubt God's uh, can do it, his ability. You don't doubt his ability. You doubt his willingness to do it because your own heart condemns you and lets you know that you don't deserve it. And you know, that is absolutely wrong. That is not the way that God is. Where did this attitude come from? It comes, first of all, from your own conscience. You know that you haven't done everything right. And this may surprise some of you. But in the Old Testament, there's a lot of times it says that because you have done this, then I'm going to punish you and I will not answer your prayers. And if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and repent and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Second Chronicles 7, 14. And there's many other passages like that. But all of those are Old Testament passages. And it is amazing how most Christians don't understand what Jesus has done and how it's changed our relationship with God. The church of Jesus Christ today is living under the old covenant instead of under the new covenant. And because of it, we are under all of the condemnation and the guilt that came from the old covenant and not enjoying the privileges of the new covenant. And so again, this is something I would normally teach on for days at a time. I'm going to try and summarize all of this in one hour, which may not be smart, but that's what I'm going to try and do. And I tell you what, if you can understand this, it will transform your life. Look at this passage of scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 5. I'll be coming back to this verse sometime this week when I teach on spirit, soul, and body and what our identity is in Christ. But I want to use these verses to show you who God is, what his identity is like. And there is a representation of God that we got from the Old Testament that wasn't, it wasn't wrong, but it was incomplete. And because of it, people have taken a wrong impression of God. Let me give this real quick story and then I'll come back to these scriptures. But I had a horse that was given to me one time named El Shaddai. It was an Arabian horse. And when it was a yearling, they put a halter on this horse and then they turned it out to pasture and they had never ridden this horse. They'd never broken this horse. They'd never touched this horse. They fed it, but nobody had done anything. And this horse was now three years old and its muzzle was being deformed by this halter that was put on it at one year old. The people who owned the horse were moving 
and they had two horses that they wanted to give me, and, uh, but they couldn't catch them. And so they said, if you can catch these horses, you can have them. So I, first of all, paid two cowboys $350 per horse to go out and catch those horses and break them. Well, it turned out that over two weekends, the cowboys got put up in the hospital and they gave the money back and they said, we can't catch these horses. And so these people were moving and it was only a week away from them moving and they were going to just call the Humane Society and have them shoot the horses and put them down, sell them for glue. And these were beautiful Arabian horses and I wanted this horse. And so anyway, it's a long story. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but the Lord showed me how to catch the horse. And when I did, it nearly killed that horse. I didn't, I know some of you are horse lovers and you're going to, I'll have people criticize me. I didn't know what I was doing. I was trying to save this horse's life. They were going to kill it. And anyway, I didn't know how this horse would respond, but when I caught it, this horse that had never been touched since it was a yearling went wild. Jamie was with me. It scared both of us. I thought that horse was going to kill itself and kill me. And, and uh, anyway, long story, but this horse just went absolutely wild. El Shaddai was demon possessed. <laughs> and this horse just went wild and it nearly killed itself. Finally, it expended all of its energy and just collapsed and fell down. I went and sat on that horse's head and took the halter off, put a new halter on, tied it in between two railroad ties. And when that horse finally got enough strength to stand up, it was broken. I could ride it. It was, its spirit was totally broken, but it was broke. It was broken beyond what you want. That horse was petrified of me it would see my little green pickup coming and it'd be standing there and it'd be a proud horse with its head up and it's a beautiful looking mare. But it'd see my green pickup coming and it'd put its head down and it'd go to shaking like this. <laughs> and when you would ride it, I'd get on that horse and that horse would just be shaking. You could just feel it vibrating. The horse was terrified of me. And it, it was terrified because of things that happened. It happened. I caught that horse. But you know what? I didn't intend to hurt that horse. It was that horse's rebellion at me catching it that caused the problem. I actually saved the horse's life. And I remember for weeks I went over and I would talk to that horse. I sang to it. I prayed in tongues. I would pet it. I'd do things. And I said, you got a wrong impression of me. I'm really not a bad guy. And I never did get this horse over it. We finally just sold that horse and they made it a a bucking bronco in the rodeo because it was a wild horse, basically. But um, that horse got a totally wrong impression of me through something I did, but it didn't understand. I was saving its life by doing that. You know, in a sense, this is what happened under the Old Testament. Under the Old Testament, a person couldn't be born again because Jesus hadn't died yet. And so how did you curb this evilness, the corruption that was in man? How did you restrain that? If, if the Lord hadn't have restrained it, there wouldn't have been a virgin left for Jesus to have been born through. The world was getting that bad. That's how bad it was. And God had to do something to restrain the amount of sin in the earth. And yet you couldn't be born again. You couldn't be forgiven yet. And so how did he do it? Well, it's similar to a parent. Before you can 
Before you can reason with your child, you've got to establish in that child that there's right and wrong and that this is acceptable behavior and this is unacceptable behavior. And if you wait until the child is 20 years old to start reasoning with them, you've lost them. You got to get them when they're young. How do you get a little tiny kid to realize that you don't do this? You know, if you sit there and talk to a one-year-old and say, now, if you go over and take this toy from your brother or sister, you are yielding to the devil. It's the devil that makes you be selfish. And if you do that, well, then Satan comes only to steal, kill, and to destroy. And you know what? You're never going to prosper and your friends aren't going to like you because you're selfish. And if you get married, your marriage won't last. You know, you try and talk to a one-year-old and explain all of this to them. They don't understand that. But you know what a one-year-old can understand? You go over there and take that toy and I'll spank you. And they may not know there is a God or devil, heaven or hell. They may not understand about demons, but they can understand that if I go take that toy, I'm going to get a spanking. And when that thought comes, they'll say no. And you can actually motivate a one-year-old to resist the devil through fear of punishment. But that's not a long-term solution. You don't want them when they're 30 years old thinking, is my parent going to spank me? If you still, you know, if you're 30 or 40 years old and you're worried about whether your parents are going to get you or not, something's wrong with you. You missed the point. My mother used to just whoop me. She didn't correct me. She whooped me. She beat me. My dad was always sick, so he never really corrected me much. It was always my mother. And we lived on a busy street. And if I crossed that street without looking both ways, I got whooped. I got beat. Amen. And you know what? I was afraid to cross the street without looking both ways because I was afraid I was going to get a whooping. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's good, by the way. But did you know that that was really not the right motivation? It was a temporary motivation before I could figure out that the real reason you look both ways before you cross the street is so you won't get run over and killed. But in the beginning, that wasn't my motivation. I did it so I wouldn't get a whipping. But now, you know what? I've learned the real motivation. But does that mean that I don't look both ways now because I'm my mother died two years ago and she, you know, I don't have to be afraid of her whipping me anymore. No, I still look both ways. I'll look both ways two or three times because I've learned now that that was just a temporary way, but it was, it did work. And in a sense, this is what the old Testament law did. When God said, if you do this, I'm going to punish you. I will not bless you. You will not receive this. And when he gave us all of these corrections under the old Testament, it was a temporary way of teaching us that this behavior produces bad results. Quit doing it. But under the new covenant, he has a new way of dealing with us. God is not going to punish you. God is not going to correct you. The word of God is his correction, but he is not going to correct you with punishment. He's not going to fail to answer your prayers. God is not the one that's doing things to you. That is a radical truth that most Christians haven't come into. Most Christians believe the reason God isn't answering my prayers is because I haven't done this and this and this. And you got that attitude from the Old Testament. But look at these verses here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in verse 17. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That verse transformed my life. I will come back to that this week. And in verse 18, and all things are of God 
who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. The word reconcile means to make friendly again or to bring into harmony. God has reconciled us unto himself. How did he do that? The next verse says, to wit. That means that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Here's how he did it. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. The word impute is an accounting term. You know, like when people used to go in and they had an account at a store and they would get something and they'd say, put that on my account. If they put it on your account, they imputed it unto you. That's what that means. It's similar to when you use a credit card today. When you give the store a credit card, you haven't paid for that product that you got. All you did was give them information that allows them to impute it unto you. It's put on your account. If you don't believe that, just don't pay your credit card bill when it comes and tell them, hey, I've already given them the credit card at the store. I'm not paying for this again. No, you didn't pay for it when you gave them the credit card. They just imputed it unto you and you have to pay that bill when it comes. And so it was recorded against you. And this means that God was in Christ. The way he reconciled us, made us friendly and brought us back into harmony was that he no longer records our sins against us. He doesn't count your sins against you. Your sins are never charged to you. A few of you are saying good and the others are saying this can't be. No, every time I sin, I've got to go and get that sin confessed. You know, I'll probably minister on this later. I can't tell you everything I know in one session. But all of your sins, past, present, and even the sins you haven't committed yet have already been forgiven. And I know some of you are saying, that can't be. There's no way. That violates everything you've been taught. That's because what we've been taught isn't according to the word of God. I can show you a good dozen, 15 scriptures that make it very clear that all of your sins, past, present, and even future sins have already been dealt with. God is not imputing sin unto you. Matter of fact, keep your finger right here because I'm coming back. But look at this verse over in Romans chapter 4. He's making this same point talking about the grace of God and he goes back and he quotes David. This is a quotation from Psalms chapter 32 and Paul, the apostle, the one who really gave us the revelation of God's grace. He goes back and in an attempt to talk about how that God is not imputing sin unto us, he goes back and quotes David. And here's what he said in verse six. This is Romans chapter four, verse six. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works. You know, these words, most of us just skip over these words. These are words that we don't use a lot. And so we just read it. And our real goal is to spend 30 minutes reading the Bible so that we can feel good or mark it on our daily Bible reading thing and get credit for it. We aren't really trying to figure out what it says. And so we just skip over these words, but this is super important. If you could understand this, God does not impute our sin unto us. Second Corinthians 5, 19, but he does impute Christ righteousness unto us. He has quit holding against you sin. He doesn't take record of your sin. 
He doesn't put it on your account, but he does put on your account the righteousness of Jesus. When God sees you, he sees you as righteous, as holy, as pure as Jesus with no sin. That is absolutely awesome. And David, under the old covenant, was writing about the man to whom the Lord would impute righteousness that is not based on your works, not a self-righteousness, but an imputed righteousness, a righteousness that's given to you separate from what you deserve. And here's what he said, quoting from Psalms chapter 32, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. He didn't say blessed is the man to whom the Lord did not impute sin, does not impute sin, but he says, will not impute sin. God didn't only forgive you up until the time that you got born again. And then every time you sin, it's a new transgression against God that has to get under the blood and gets reconfessed and reatoned for. And until you get everything back right. You can't expect God to fellowship with you, to answer your prayers or to do whatever. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. (laughs) This is exactly what's being taught in religion today, that every time you sin, it's a transgression against God. But the scripture here says that the way God reconciled us unto himself is he does not impute our sins unto us. And David said he will never impute sin unto you. Sin is a dead issue between you and God. You know why I rent a building like this? Because 99.9% of churches would crucify me if I said this in their church. I've got some pastors here. I was talking to one pastor over here, Levi and... He's talking about, there's good churches out there, but I tell you, the religious church today is imputing people's sins unto them and every, that you are sin conscious and you are constantly evaluating, oh God, have I prayed enough? Have I fasted enough? Have I been kind enough? If you had a fight on the way to church, most of you sit there, well, I can't expect to receive anything from God because I've got unforgiveness in my heart because I've done this and that. And It's not that God isn't giving and blessing you. You won't receive it because you don't feel worthy. You won't let God magnify himself in your life. You stop God from blessing you. Your own conscience. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 19 that your faith is made shipwrecked by an evil conscience. If you are sitting here living under condemnation and feeling like, oh God, I'm not what I should be. It's your condemnation and your own guilt that is keeping the power of God from operating in you. It's not God who's not releasing it. It's you that short circuit it by your condemnation and by your guilt. And the church is the number one place that is telling you every time you sin, God is angry at you because of sin. That's not true. It was true that under the old covenant, God's wrath was poured out on sin. As I was describing, this was the way in a sense of of chastising us before we could understand spiritual things. Before we got born again, a lost man, an Old Testament man couldn't understand spiritual things the way that you and I can. I know that this is a lost, it's a comment that's lost on the average person today because most of us feel like we're so spiritually dull. 
but it's because we aren't taking advantage and using what we've got. But the truth is that an Old Testament person couldn't understand the slightest, simplest little thing. It says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You can't understand God with your carnal brain. It's got to come by a spiritual revelation. Matter of fact, right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I believe it's verse 8, where it says, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And people will take that verse out of context and just say, well, we can't know the things of God. Further along, we'll understand why. Further along, we'll know all about it. And we just talk about how we're just stumbling through life and can't understand things. That is talking about you in your physical, natural ability can't understand the things of God. But the very next verse, 1 Corinthians, what is it? 2 verse 9. It says, but, or excuse me, that was verse 9 that says you can't, I hadn't seen nor ear heard. But verse 10 says, but God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. This isn't saying you can't know the things of God. It's just saying you can't know it with your little peanut brain. You can't figure God out with your mind. You've got to take the word of God and embrace it with your heart. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can know these things. But an Old Testament man who wasn't born again in spiritual couldn't understand spiritual things. So how is it that you get an Old Testament man to learn the principles of giving and planting your seed in the ground? They couldn't understand spiritual truth. How is it that you do it? Just tell them if you're cursed with the curse, give or I'll curse you. I'll smite you with the box, the mildew, the emrods. I won't bless you. And you know what? You can get a lost man to shell out 10%. (laughs) But under the new covenant, we got something better. Under the new covenant, we give not grudgingly or of necessity, like you're cursed with the curse if you don't give. Instead, we give cheerfully because God loves a cheerful giver. And it ends those two chapters of talking about finances, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. The last verse says, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift, 2 Corinthians 9, 15. That's the motivation for the New Testament believer to give is just because God has blessed us. And so we give with a different motivation. And yet how many churches are up there saying, God's going to curse you with the curse. God won't bless you if you don't give. And they're using an Old Testament motivation of fear to get you to do what should be done cheerfully and joyfully under the new covenant. And when I talk like this, there's a lot of people say, man, if you were to preach that people would quit giving. It's not true. I guarantee you, we do not manipulate, condemn people. And we are blessed. People give. I've had people give their entire paycheck and I've had to go back and give them their paycheck back and say, look, you don't have to give the whole thing. Just give a portion. I've had to restrain people from giving. People will give better out of love than they will out of fear and death. But most people are so conditioned that they're afraid that if I just tell people to give what they purpose in their heart, they're liable to give nothing. Why? It's because their heart hadn't been touched. You get their heart touched and people will want to give. People will start doing the right thing. This says that God is not imputing our trespasses unto us. And that is how he reconciled us, made us friendly, brought us back into harmony. This is the only way that you can really have a relationship with God is to understand that God is not imputing your sins unto you. And some people say, I just can't understand this. 
How is it that a holy God does not impute my sins unto us? Well, I'm glad you asked that. And I am going to teach either tonight or tomorrow. I'm going to talk about spirit, soul, and body, that it's in your spirit that you got born again. And your spirit is completely changed. And the Bible says in James or John 4, 24, that God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The way that God, a holy God can deal with you when you're unholy is because God isn't looking on you the way you look on you. He doesn't look at your actions and your outside. God is looking on your heart that has, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, been completely changed. You're a new creature. And in your spirit, you are righteous and you are holy. And a holy God can deal with you just like you've never sinned because in your spirit, you have never sinned. You got a new spirit and then it's sealed with the Holy Spirit and it never becomes contaminated. And God deals with you 100% based on who you are in the spirit and not based on your actions. Does this mean that you therefore are free to go act and be as mean as a snake or whatever? Even though God loves you and deals with you based on who you are in the spirit, God's not the only one we deal with. There is an enemy, the devil, as a roaring lion who goes about seeking whom he may devour. And if you go live in sin, you have just invited the devil into your life. You open up a door and say, devil, shoot your best shot. Make me sick. Make me poor. Destroy my marriage. Destroy my health. Do whatever. And you're stupid if you do that. You're absolutely stupid if you go live in sin because it's giving Satan an inroad. But I'm saying God loves you, stupid. Amen. (laughs) God's not mad at you. God's dealing with you based on who you are in the spirit. But there is still consequences to your sin, not from God, but from the devil. And so this is one of the things that set me free is that God, a holy God, can treat me just as if I've never sinned because in my spirit I have never sinned. It's pure. It's as righteous and holy as Jesus. I'll deal with that in more detail and establish that. But here is another thing that really set me free and helped me to understand how a holy God can treat an unholy me as if I'd never sinned. That's what the word justified means. Just as if I'd never sinned. It means literally to declare free from the guilt and the penalty attached to grievous sins. In God's sight, it's just as if you've never sinned. God doesn't look at your sin. It says in Psalms 103, he removes it as far as the east is from the west. That's an infinite distance. God has removed your sin. In your spirit, there is no sin. You are as pure and righteous as Jesus is. I will give you more scriptures on that and establish that. But look over here in John chapter 12 and let me share this passage with you. Here's how a holy God can treat you as if you haven't sinned. A lot of people think, so you're saying that God just in a sense just overlooks it. And he just decides, all right, sin's not a big deal anymore. That's not what I'm saying at all. You know, I get criticized a lot. People say, man, you're making light of sin. And people think I I am making light of sin. That's not it at all. I am probably, I probably hate sin as much as any person in here. 
I have seen what it's done in my life and other people. I am not making light of sin, but I believe people that don't have this approach towards it are making light of Jesus' sacrifice for sin. They're thinking it didn't totally work. But Jesus paid everything that there was to pay so much so that now if I go about bearing any sense of unworthiness and guilt, it is an insult against what Jesus paid. That's a strong statement, but it's absolutely true. Look at this in John chapter 12. Jesus was being criticized as always for representing God and the people came out against him and the Lord said this in John chapter 12 and in verse 28, he says, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spoke unto him. Did you know everybody heard the exact same thing? And yet there was different responses of what it was. Some people thought it was thunder. Other people recognized it as a voice. You know, people think, oh, if God had just proved things to me, if he had just do something so that, you know, it'd remove all of my doubt. It takes faith to believe in God. People heard the audible voice from God out of heaven and some people relegated it to thunder. You know, if you have a hardened heart, if you are the type of person that's skeptical and you just approach everything and you aren't going to believe unless God makes you bow the knee, you wouldn't recognize it if God raised somebody from the dead. You'd sit there and say, how do we know they were really dead? I've had people come out and criticize me. Did you get a doctor to confirm that your son was dead? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, they did pronounce him dead and put him in a morgue on a slab with a toe tag on. But you know what? They're, well, have you had this confirmed? And if, you know, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, did he get a doctor to confirm that he was dead? Did he get a certificate of death? There's people that you just have a mindset you are going to look and it's only going to be after every possible thing is removed. You aren't going to believe until it's absolutely forced on you. If you heard the audible voice out of heaven, you'd think that was thunder that sounded like a voice. You would find some way to excuse it. Don't look at me that way. I can guarantee you that there's people just like that. It happened here and it would happen again. And here's what Jesus answered and said unto them. He said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. In verse 32, this verse has been used many times. I've actually used this this way myself and it was wrong thinking that if you just really preach Jesus properly and if you glorify him properly, that it'll draw all men unto that message. That if you are truly preaching the gospel, you'll have a gigantic mega church. You know what? That's not what this is talking about. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I don't think I need to, but brothers and sisters, the biggest churches are not the ones that are glorifying Jesus. They are compromising big time. They are doing things to water down the gospel, to make it easy on people so that there is no commitment. The biggest churches are the ones that are, have dumbed down the gospel and it uh, allows people to come and soothe their conscience. That's not true of all big churches, but I'm saying that, uh, matter of fact, I'm not going to mention the name, but one of the guys who pioneered the seeker sensitive churches, the user friendly churches or whatever you call, call it. 
and got their message down to 20 minute and made it into a production and all of the lights and the flashes. And they thought that they'll draw in lots of people. They draw 20 and 30,000 people. The man who pioneered that and who taught courses on it and led thousands of churches into this kind of mindset came out a few years back saying it's a failure that they have 30,000 people, but they aren't, most of them aren't even Christians. They aren't baptized in the Holy Spirit. It is a failure. He thought it would work and it didn't. And I can guarantee you that this mentality to where you just draw lots of people, but you give them pablum and you don't give them anything that's of substance and you don't do anything to offend them. If you're going to minister the Holy Spirit, take them into the back room and let's not offend anybody by doing things. And let's have, you know, your, your services for the fanatics. This is your charismatic service. And then here's your traditional service over here. That doesn't work. Thank you for that one. Amen. (laughs) That's my opinion. I know that opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one usually has a couple of holes in it, but that's my opinion. Praise God. And I just don't believe it works. This is not saying that if you just preach Jesus, right, that all men will be drawn unto you that you can't observe that. Some of the people who are preaching the strongest word are people that have lots of people rejecting them and people aren't coming. Matter of fact, you can look in Jesus life. And Jesus preached a message. It was so strong. The people wanted to come and make him a king because he had multiplied their food and fed them. And so they were going to come and take him and make him a king, not because they worshiped him, not because they truly valued him. They liked their belly being full. And Jesus said, you aren't seeking me because of who I am. You're seeking me because I filled your belly. And so he started preaching a hard message and he says, I'm the manna that came down from heaven. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you don't have any life. The people thought he was talking to cannibalism. You know what the preachers today would have done if somebody, oh, oh, don't misunderstand. Let me explain. We would have been over backwards. We would have done backflips trying to keep from offending anybody. And he could have easily explained it and say that it wasn't literal that you had to eat his flesh. It was talking about that you have to be sustained by him. But instead of apologizing, instead of correcting it, he says, I tell you that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He got stronger and thousands of people, thousands of people left him so that all he had left was 12 disciples most people would be saying, oh, I must have done something wrong. I must not be glorifying God, right? Or I would have drawn all men unto me. No, Jesus turned around to his 12 disciples and he says, well, you go also. There's the door. If you don't like it, you can leave. This is a wrong interpretation to think that this is talking about that if you just preach Jesus properly, it'll draw people into, you know, here's the key to me in verse 32, it says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. The word men is italicized. You know what that means? The King James translators had enough integrity that if they added a word, they would put it in italics to let you know that this wasn't in the original language. They added it to help make things clear. And sometimes it's, um, It's accurate to do that. Like for instance, where Jesus said, I am he. To be grammatically correct, you need that word he, but it's italicized because it wasn't in the original language. And when he said, I am is what he really said. All of the soldiers, 60 plus soldiers fell backwards to the ground. You know what really happened? 
It was the great I am of Exodus chapter three saying, I am, and boom, they were all flattened out. But they added the word he to make it grammatically correct. That's okay as long as you can understand what's going on. But at least they had the integrity to tell you that they added this word. This word, men, was added. What's the context of this? In the previous verse, he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. It was talking about judgment. And then in the next verse, verse 33, he said, this he said, signifying what death he should die. This isn't talking about just glorifying Jesus and making sure that you tell people how wonderful he is. This was talking about when he was lifted up on the tree on the cross, this was talking about his death. So the verse before was talking about judgment of sin. The verse after is talking about judgment of sin. And I believe that the translators got it wrong when they put in there that he will draw man unto himself. What he was talking about is that I, if I be lifted up, which is talking about being crucified, I will draw all of God's judgment for sin into my body. He literally became a lightning rod that when he was crucified, every bit of anger and wrath against your sin was placed on Jesus. All of it, not a token of it, not a taste of it, but all of it, all of it. God isn't angry anymore. God's not even in a bad mood. His wrath has been satisfied. It has been appeased. And he didn't just pay for your sins up until the time you got born again. And then every time you sin after that, you've got to get it confessed and under the blood. And you've got to live in a constant state of repentance. God forgave your sins that you haven't even committed yet. I know some of you are thinking, now how could God forgive a sin before I commit it? You better hope that he can because he only died for your sins and was lifted up 2,000 years ago before you existed And before you had ever sinned, I don't know how he does it, but God was able to see the sin of the entire world. And he has already forgiven all of the sin of the entire world. People are not going to hell for being homosexuals. They go to hell because they rejected Jesus who paid for their sin of homosexuality. The only sin that the Holy Spirit will convict you of, according to John chapter 16, is the sin of not believing on Jesus. John chapter 16, verse 9 and 10. The singular sin, not sins plural, but the sin of not believing on Jesus. Your sins have been paid for. The sins of unbelievers have been paid for. They aren't going to go to hell for their individual sins. You know, I'm a little bit unclear on this. Their sins have been paid for. I'm clear on that. But if they don't accept Jesus, it's possible then there, there are going to be held accountable for those sins because they didn't accept the payment. But either way, whether they pay for those sins or whether they just pay for the singular sin of rejecting Jesus, that's enough to damn you to hell forever. The sin of rejecting Jesus who drew all of God's wrath. He came down here and he didn't only suffer on the cross. Jesus suffered by, he was infinite and he became finite. He became limited to a physical body. He had to walk from place to place. Whereas he could go from one end of the universe to the other. He could hold the universe 
It's the scripture says in Psalms in the palm of his hand. Think about how big the universe is and his hand, the universe will fit in the palm of his hand. Infinite God came and lived in a physical body. God, Jesus suffered for the full 33 years he was here. He would walk by people that he created. He created them. It says in Colossians chapter one, without him was not anything made that was made. And he would walk by people and they wouldn't even know he was there. To think that you are the creator. You're the one that created everything and your own creation doesn't even know you. That was suffering. He got hungry. He got tired. He saw people die around him and he could have done something, but it wasn't his time yet. He didn't do any miracles until his ministry started. He saw all of these things happen. He dealt with sorrow. He saw people around him suffer. Jesus became one of us. And he did this because God's wrath had to be satisfied. God's sin had to be judged. God never has overlooked sin. I'm not saying that he's overlooking your sin. I'm saying God paid the full measure. He punished his son in ways that we can't even imagine. The wrath of God came on Jesus for what you and what I have done. You know, if I had time, normally I have this series entitled, uh, The War is Over, that makes this point. And I spend uh, five or six messages making this point. But if I had time, I could turn over to Isaiah chapter 52. And it describes Jesus on the cross. And it says that his face was marred more than any man's face that has ever been on this earth. And his form was so marred so that he didn't look human. In the King James, it uses the word visage and his form. But if you read it in any modern translation, it's talking about that he honestly did not look human. This is more than just the whipping of the Romans. You know, the passion of the Christ, that show by Mel Gibson, it was graphic and people thought it was over the top, but it didn't even come close portraying what really happened to Jesus. And as brutalized as Jesus was in that movie, he still looked like a human. But the Bible says in Isaiah 52, I believe it's verse 13, that his form uh, was not even like that of a human. He didn't look human. You know, I have prayed with people that have grotesque things. I've seen pictures of people with elephantitis to where their limbs are swollen out and terrible deformities and different things. I had one man come to me and he had a towel over his face and he was trying to get me to pray for him. And I finally just said, you're going to have to move the towel. I cannot understand what you're saying. And he moved the towel and he'd had cancer that ate away his nose and his lips and his face. And you could see all up inside of his skull and into his cavity. And he was oozing all of these fluids and stuff. And it was grotesque looking. In that same meeting, I had a man come who had a cancer that had eaten his eyeball out and it was all out on the, on his face. If you could imagine putting all of those things together into one person, this is what Jesus looked like. All of the sickness, all of the disease of the entire human race came into Jesus body. His body swelled up. It wasn't just the Roman beating. 
He became sin for us is what it says. Second Corinthians 5, 21 in, in first Peter 2, 24, who his own self bear our sin in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. Jesus took all of this sickness and disease into our body. Matthew chapter eight, verse 17 says he bore our infirmities, carried our sicknesses. And Jesus literally had sickness and all of the things that sin has done to the human race throughout eternity, enter into his physical body and it deformed him so much that he didn't look human hanging on the cross. That show by Mel Gibson, I'm not criticizing him because you know what, you're only limited with, you can only do so much, but it didn't even come close to representing how much Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered so much, more than I think that any of us can wrap our brain or our heart around. He suffered so much that for you to think that you have to suffer also for your sin and go around depressed and discouraged until you feel that you've done enough penance. It's like a slap in the face of Jesus. It's ignoring what Jesus has done. Jesus paid more than what you owed. It's like if you had one of these scales here, you know, that have the chains and the little thing. And you, if you put all of the sins of the entire world over here so that it tipped down one drop of Jesus' blood. He was so holy. He was so pure that one drop of his blood over here would tip the scales. Amen. It paid for more than the sins of the entire universe. And for you to sit there and say, well, I know God could set me free, but I'm just not sure he will. I know I'm not worthy. I haven't done this and that. You, in a sense, are devaluing what Jesus has done. You haven't glorified him. You haven't understood that he paid for your sins so that there's nothing left to be paid. God's wrath was forever satisfied. If somehow I loved you enough that if you had done something to me and I said, rather than me punish you or get evil with, even with you, I'll just take my son and I'll kill him in your place. I can't even imagine loving you that much. But if I did, I wouldn't do that unless I was absolutely certain that that was more than sufficient to pay for the thing. I wouldn't do that if it only partially paid for it and it was still dependent upon you groveling in the dirt and doing all of these things. I wouldn't do it unless that was going to satisfy everything. God, when he sent his son and paid for our sins, he paid for our sins. His life was worth more than our life. You know, it'd be similar if I saw a pile of an ant uh, hill or something. And if I had compassion on those ants, and if I had the ability to become an ant and suffer for them, my life would be worth more than all of that ant hill because I'm a human and they're an ant. We got some tree huggers today that don't believe that. But I was created in the image of God and a human life is worth more than all of the animal life on this planet. And if a human could somehow or another become an ant, well, then that would make my ant life worth more than the whole ant hill. When God became a man, Jesus' life, his purity and his holiness was so great that it was worth more than the entire human race's life. And when he suffered and died for us, it paid your debt in full. 
He is not imputing sin unto you. It's like you've never done anything. You know, again, if you go back and take this example of a credit card, and if I was about to buy something and I was ready to give them my credit card and instead somebody else walks up and says, here, let me pay for this. And they give them their, their credit card and said, impute that to my account, put that on my account. Would it be right for me to say, well, I got to pay something. And even though, you know, it may have been a thousand dollars and I I say, I'm going to pay something. I, I, you know, send me a bill and let me pay something for this. You'd be stupid to do that. If somebody else is paying your bill, let them pay your bill. And if they send you a bill and say, well, look, I don't care who paid your bill. You're the one that got the good. You're the one that got the product. So it's just right that you paid 10%. Most of you would reject that and say, no way. I saw that other person. They paid in full and I am not going to pay for it. And yet Christians have been taught that yes, Jesus died for your sins, but he didn't pay at all. You've also got to suffer. Every time you sin, you can't expect to have fellowship with God. God won't fellowship with you because you don't deserve it. You aren't worthy. You aren't holy. The reason you aren't having joy and peace is because you haven't been holy enough. And God is the one that's held his joy back. You aren't having the fullness in the life of God because God is ticked off at you. He may not send you to hell. Your sins have been paid for in part, but you haven't lived up to your part. And so you got to suffer with separation from God and sickness and God won't answer your prayer. I know some of you are thinking, who would think that? Every person out there sometime or another has thought this way. There's people that come to me all the time and say, my prayers haven't worked. Would you pray? And what they're basically saying is, you know, I know that I don't deserve it. Maybe you deserve it. Maybe God will answer your prayers. That's an offense to Jesus. There are some of you that you don't doubt. If I tell you that miracles happen for me, you say, I know it's true, but it just would never happen for me. That's your own conscience condemning you and you don't understand how Jesus has already paid for your sins. You are still living under the old covenant where every time a person sinned, there had to be an offering made for that sin. But in the new covenant, I'm going to deal with this in more detail. If you'll come back, I'll turn over to Hebrews chapter nine and chapter 10, where it says five different times in the old covenant, there had to be an offering made every time you sin. But in the new covenant, one offering, one atonement for sin forever. You're forgiven forever. You're cleansed. God's not mad at you. God's not imputing sin unto you. He's not upset. Somebody says, well, God told me not to do this because it was sin. Because he loves you. He doesn't want you to go out there and be ensnared by the devil. And he'll tell you this is wrong, but he's not mad at you. He's already paid for it. He's just trying to encourage you that this is wrong. Don't do it. There are consequences. Satan is going to come into your life. But God is not the one that's condemning you. The scripture says over in first John chapter three, that if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. What that is saying is that you can be condemned and God's not the source of your condemnation. It's your own conscience aggravated by religion that is making you sin conscious and unworthy and keeping you from enjoying the presence and the fellowship and the blessings of God. I was raised in a religious culture, probably stricter than most of you. I've met a few people as bad as I was, but not very many. 
I'll be turning 62 this month and I have never said a word of profanity. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never tasted coffee in my entire life. I am one holy dude, man. I was raised to live right. Some of you are thinking, coffee? What are you saying about coffee? You, gotta, you can drink coffee. You got a scripture that says you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you, amen. I'm just saying, I have, I've lived holier than most of you in here. I have lived super old, but I was raised to believe I had to do that to get God's love. And even though I've lived holier than most of you, you know what? I still wasn't experiencing God's love. My dad died when I was 12 years old. I spent nearly six months fasting and praying for him to be healed. And it's just like I never prayed. We didn't see him healed. I saw people die around me. I was an introvert. I couldn't look at a person in the face and talk to him. I was constantly condemned. I believe God could do anything, but I didn't believe he would do it because I wasn't worthy enough. And I was in the natural. If you just talk about physical action, I was living holier than most people. And I'm saying all of this to tell you that some of you who think that you've still got to do this and this and this to earn God's favor and get God to love you, I've lived holier than you've ever thought about. And it wasn't enough, (laughs) man. You aren't going to make it. You're on a treadmill doing all of this and getting nowhere. It's not accomplishing anything. What you've got to do is quit trying to earn the favor of God and please God and just run up a white flag and say, God, I receive it as a gift. I, re- I put my faith in Jesus. I believe that you punished Jesus for all my sins. And not only were my sins imputed unto Jesus and not imputed unto me, but now all of his righteousness was imputed unto me. He got all of my sin. I got all of his righteousness. I am now right with God. I am standing in the presence of God just as if I'd never sinned. God sees me as righteous as Jesus. And some of you just gasp and choke on that thinking, how dare you say such a thing? My physical body's not as righteous as Jesus. My mind and my thoughts aren't as righteous as Jesus, but my born again spirit is a brand new creation. It was created in righteousness and holiness and it's as righteous and pure as Jesus is. And God is a spirit and he sees me in the spirit and relates to me based on who I am in the spirit. And because of that, God is as pleased with me as he is with Jesus. And the good news is if you've been born again, the same thing's true of you. The only difference is many of you haven't heard this and many of you don't believe it. And many of you are constantly looking on the outward appearance and on what you have done or failed to do rather than on what Jesus has done for you. And that's the reason that you aren't enjoying his presence. We have this concept that God can move. God could give you joy, but he doesn't give it to you. It's because we're in the physical. In the spirit, you've already got love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. You've already got this. God's already done everything. You don't need God to heal you, to set you free, to rebuke the devil. God's already done everything. He's put it all on the inside of you. And as quick as you can renew your mind and begin to believe that it's done, you can start experiencing the benefits of it. You are free from sin. 
You are free from sin. If you've been born again, you are dead unto sin. Sin has no more dominion over you for you not under the law, but under grace. Just on and on the scriptures go. I'm saying a lot in a short period of time, but there are hundreds of scriptures that validate everything that I'm saying. I encourage you to get the teaching on the war is over, the true nature of God, all of these kind of things, spirit, soul, and body, eternal redemption, all of these things. God has already done this and we haven't understood it because we are living under the old covenant. To most people, the only difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is one blank page in your Bible. And they just mix it all together. But I tell you what, Jesus forever changed everything. That's the reason that history is BC and AD. Jesus changed the entire world. It changed God's dealing with us. David prayed in Psalms chapter 50 or 51. He says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And people sing those songs today. And they pray about it. Man, that's wrong, wrong, wrong. God's promised he'll never leave us nor forsake us. It was okay for David to pray that because he didn't have a covenant where God said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. He wasn't a born again man. So it was appropriate to say, oh God, I'm sorry. And I repent, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Don't leave me. It was okay. But for you to sing that is a slap in the face of Jesus. You've already been cleansed. You don't need a new heart. When you got born again, you were given a brand new heart and you are now identical to Jesus in your spirit. It's not a new heart that you need. It's a new brain. We need to renew our mind and find out what we've got. Man, I'm way over time. I'm sorry. I wasn't paying attention, but man, this is good stuff. Instead of praying... Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Instead of begging God to come and be with us when he said, whenever two or three have gathered together, I'm there in your name. Why would you beg him to do something he said he'd do? And then we say, Lord, just go with us as we leave this place. What a stupid prayer. Stupid prayer. What's he going to do? Leave and then come back so that he can answer your prayer? It's stupid prayer. Oh God, heal me when he says, by my stripes, you're already healed. You know, if God could be confused, I believe God would be confused. (laughs) I could just see God saying, I know I said somewhere in here that by my stripes, they were healed. I know it's in there somewhere. Could somebody look that up on a computer? (laughs) Man, by stripes, we were healed. And yet we're begging God to heal us begging God to bless us. God's already done everything. And this Old Testament mentality to where, oh, I know he's provided it, but I'm not worthy. And I've got to ask and plead. It's all wrong. The truth is you've already got everything in you. And the only thing that's wrong with you is you're missing some connections here in your brain. We believe the lie. We're under deception and knowing the truth would set you free. God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't make God love you more and you can't make him love you less. You can enjoy him more and you can enjoy him less if you believe a lie or if you believe the truth. 
that God's love towards you is, is the same because he is love and it's not based on your performance. He loves you because he's love, not because you're lovely. Amen. Boy, if you ever understand that, the devil is hurting for certain because this is what he's been using against us is our sins and our failures to make us feel unworthy. It's not that you doubt God has the power. You doubt God is willing to use his power on your behalf because you know you aren't worthy. You're looking on the outside. You aren't looking at that born again man. Come back tonight and I'll start teaching you who you are in Christ and show you these things. And I guarantee you, it'll change your life. Amen. Let's praise God. Let's thank and praise God for the awesome things he's done. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing our sin. Thank you for bearing all judgment in your body on the tree so that God's wrath has been satisfied. And even though we don't deserve anything from you, Father, thank you that it's all ours through Jesus, that we have his righteousness imputed unto us and all of our sin imputed unto Jesus. All of our sin was put to your account. All of your goodness was put to our account. Thank you, Father, that in Christ we are righteous and holy and pure. And thank you that it's in the spirit that you see us, that you deal with us based on this new born again man. Thank you, Father, for our salvation. Father, we just thank you so much for sending your son. And I'm asking that the Holy Spirit would take the things that we've shared here today. And Father, I know that religion is hard to overcome and all of the things that we've been taught and this sin consciousness, but I'm asking for a breakthrough, just a miraculous breakthrough by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would be delivered from this sin consciousness and unworthiness that we would begin to start experiencing and and appropriating our salvation and receive what you have really provided for us. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Well, I believe God is touching people's hearts. I believe people's lives are being changed. Father, we just receive this truth with meekness that's able to save our souls, change our souls from the way that they've been. Father, I pray that people would leave here today enjoying being free from sin, that they would not be sin conscious. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the freedom for that. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. You know, if there's anybody here who's not born again, what a great day to be born again. What a great message to hear about that God bore all of your judgment. You may know that God exists, but you may think, would he save me? He's already done it. He's already died for your sins. The only thing left is for you to receive what has already been provided. If you don't know Jesus, you need to receive it. And if you are already born again, but if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's like I was teaching. The natural man can't understand what I'm talking about. You may have been excited and rejoiced today, but you'll lose this if you don't get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to impart this to you by revelation. So you need to receive the Holy Spirit. Some people think they got everything that they can get from the Holy Spirit when you got born again. But there is a separate experience from salvation called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It includes many things. It includes speaking in tongues. 
If you don't speak in tongues, you need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when you do, the Holy Spirit will go to explaining these things to you that I've talked about today. It's the only way you can retain it. Is there anybody in here who'd say, I need one or both of those? Either I need to make Jesus my Lord or I need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand and we're going to pray with you and help you to receive. Praise God. We've got people all over the auditorium. We had 120 people receive the baptism and three born again last night. But man, we're going to receive more today. Thank you, Jesus. If you raised your hand, I'd like to ask you to come forward and we're going to pray with you and help you to receive either salvation and or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Just come forward right now. Let's praise God for these. Thank you, Jesus. You know, if you raised your hand, you ought to come down here. Somebody's thinking, what are you going to do? We're going to pray for you. We're going to help you. We aren't going to do anything weird. I'm going to give you a free book. What a deal. Amen. And you got nothing to lose. You got everything to gain. Somebody's thinking, well, I don't pray in tongues, but I'm not sure about this. Well, I am. So if you aren't sure, you ought to trust somebody who is sure. I am absolutely convinced that this is for you, for every born again person. Somebody says, well, they don't preach this in my church. That's the reason I'm not in your church. But I'm telling you that it works. It's powerful. This is going to change your life. You'll never be the same. You're going to be stronger than horseradish after this. It's going to change your life. You know, there's still people out there that you don't speak in tongues, but this is new to you and you're just willing to sit there and think about it and let me mull this over. I've had people before say, let me think about it. And I've come to realize that, you know what? I'm the professional. I get paid for doing this. This is how I make my living. If I leave you to think about it, you'll come to the same conclusion and the same results you've had for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You know what? If the Holy Spirit is dealing with you and touching your heart, you need to come right now. There's nothing bad going to happen. The Bible says if you ask for a, uh, a piece of bread from your father, he won't give you a stone. If you ask for a fish, he won't give you a serpent. If you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Nothing bad's going to happen to you. God's not going to let you get something bad. The worst thing that could happen is you come up here and nothing happens and you go back the way you were. But you know what? I believe that if you come up here, I believe God's going to touch you. There's nothing to lose. There's everything to gain. I just know in my heart, there's still people sitting there. That for what reason, whatever reason you hadn't come, you need to come. Here's a couple. I knew you were out there. God loves you. He wants you to receive. Amen. There's others. Thank you, Jesus. I'm not going to force you, but I do want you to know that God wants you to have this. It's absolutely essential. You need it. Before you can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you first of all have to receive Jesus as your personal Savior. You can't receive the Holy Spirit until you receive the one who gives the Holy Spirit, which is Jesus. So is there anybody up here who's not absolutely sure 
that you've received forgiveness. You know, there's a lot of people that think, well, I believe that God exists and I believe Jesus is the son of God. And you believe all of those things. The Bible says that even the devils believe and tremble. But won't you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. Just believing that God exists and that Jesus is the son of God is not salvation. It says that you have to make him your Lord. You have to confess him your Lord with your mouth. If you haven't done that, you need to do that and receive Jesus as your personal savior. This doesn't mean that you're promising I'll never do anything wrong because you can't keep that commitment. But you are saying, I'm giving you control of my life. I'm making you my Lord. I trust you and your goodness 100%. I believe that you bore all of my judgment so that I can receive this forgiveness. Is there anybody here who's not done that and you need to pray and do that first? Anybody? If you aren't sure, I want, to, I want you to raise your hand because I need to pray with you first. Here's a couple right here. Anybody else? Here's another one over here. Praise God. Anybody else? Here's one down here. Anybody else? Are you sure? I'm not trying to talk you out of it, but you got to be sure. The Bible says you know that you passed from death unto life. Here's another one. If you aren't sure, maybe you've thought you were saved, but you don't really have an assurance of your salvation. You need to make sure. Anybody else? Praise God. This is like five or six people here. I'm going to lead you in a prayer and I'm going to say the words that you need to say. It's not magic. It's not like if you just say these words, abracadabra, it works. The Bible says you have to believe it in your heart, but I'm going to say what you need to say. And if you believe with your heart, then you will be born again. Jesus has already paid for your sin. He took God's wrath and judgment and all he's asking is for you to receive it as a gift and quit trying to earn relationship with God. So I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. I want you to say this after me. I'd like to ask everybody in here to pray this so that they won't feel like people are listening to them. And as you say these words out of your heart, I believe that God is forgiving you. You are becoming a brand new person right now. Isn't that a good deal? That's awesome. Let's say this. Say, Father, I'm sorry for my sins. I believe Jesus died to forgive my sin. And I receive that forgiveness. Jesus, I make you my Lord. I believe that you are alive. That you now live in me. I am forgiven. I am saved right now in Jesus' name. Amen. You believe that? You believe that, brother? Welcome to the family. Awesome. Welcome. You're a new person in Christ Jesus. Isn't that awesome? You believe that? I believe you're saved. Amen. And down here, I believe, you know, I was eight years old when I got born again and I was born again. It took. He's seven. You know what? I believe you're born again. I believe Jesus now lives on the inside of you. Thank you, Jesus. Now, according to the Bible, it says that when you get born again, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It says that a number of different times. So this means that in your spirit, you are created. God created you to fill with his Holy Spirit. That's what you were created for. He wants this more than you want it. We don't have to beg. 
We don't have to plead. Some people teach that you got to be holy before you can receive the Holy Spirit. But if you could get holy without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. If you got sin in your life, if there's failure, if you aren't the person that you're supposed to be, it's not going to keep God from giving. God wants to fill you with his Holy Spirit. It's just a matter of you believing and receiving. So we're just going to ask one time, we're going to open up the doors of this temple and welcome the Holy Spirit to come into our life. And God's just going to come flooding in. We aren't going to beg. He wants to come in. All he needs is a crack in the door and he's coming in. And then I'm going to ask our prayer ministers to come up here. And these are people that already have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that when the disciples laid hands on people, that the Holy Spirit came upon them. So we're going to ask, and then they're going to lay hands on you and release this power of the Holy Spirit to come into your life. And whether you feel anything or not, he said, if you ask, you will receive the Holy Spirit. I believe God is going to give you the Holy Spirit and you just have to believe. So whether you feel anything or not, after they lay hands on you, I want you to quit asking God to give you the Holy Spirit and instead just start thanking him and praising him that he did it. Use some faith and start thanking him out loud. I want you to start out loud thanking him that he gave you the Holy Spirit. And at that time, after they've laid hands on you, I want you to put your hands in the air like this because the Bible says that when you lift up your hands... You bless the Lord. This blesses God. It's a way of, you know, like when somebody sticks a gun in your back and you go, I surrender, I give. And this is your way of saying, I surrender and yield. So we're going to pray and ask. They're going to lay hands on you. You're going to start lifting your hands and thanking God. And then we're going to pray in tongues. And as we pray in tongues, I want you to join in and pray in tongues with us. And I know some of you still have a lot of questions like, well, I don't know how to pray in tongues. What do I do? I hadn't got time to explain it. I've already gone a long time today, but I've got a book that I'm going to give you. It will explain it. The number one problem is people wait on God to force you to speak in tongues. It's not like that. The Bible says they spoke with tongues, Acts 2, 4, as the Spirit gave them the utterance. It's like when I preached tonight. I spoke. That's the reason it came out with my sense of humor. It's the reason it came out with the Texas twang. It was me talking but God inspired it. It's the same. You have to talk in tongues. The Holy Spirit doesn't talk in tongues. You speak in tongues. He inspires it. So it's a step of faith. And anyway, I've got a book that will explain it. And if you have any questions, I promise you everything I know about it's in there. But if you're ready, you could pray in tongues right now. We see a lot of people just pray in tongues instantly. And then others, after they read the book, they get their questions answered and they pray in tongues. But God is going to give you the Holy Spirit. And if you're ready, you can pray in tongues right now. And it's going to change your life. Amen? Isn't that good? Well, God loves you. And the Bible says that the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Spirit. When you receive this gift of the Holy Spirit, you're going to just experience so much love of God. It's going to transform your life. Amen. So, Father, I thank you for all of these. Thank you that they are born again. That all of them now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we welcome you, Holy Spirit, to come and fill your temple, to take up residence, to dwell in us. We open up the doors of this temple. And Holy Spirit, we desire your power to come into our life. We want the supernatural presence and power of the Holy Spirit flowing in us. So we open our hearts and we receive now in Jesus' name. 
we lay hands on you and say, receive the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. We loose this power and this anointing of the Holy Spirit to flow through every one of these right now. Oh, there's the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Father, brother, don't turn your head. No, shake it. Yes, yes, yes. Amen. You got it. Thank you, Jesus. Now let's start praising God. Let's lift your hands and let's thank God. Thank you, Father, that your word is true. Thank you, Father, that right now I am filled with your Holy Spirit, that it's not me living, it's Christ living in me. Thank you, Father, that I have the gifts of the Holy Spirit, this gift of speaking in tongues. Thank you, Father, for your power flowing in our lives right now. Thank you, Jesus. Those of you who know how to pray in tongues, let's begin to start worshiping God and pray in tongues. And as we speak in tongues, you speak with us. If you don't know what to say, you can try and say what you hear somebody else saying, but that's not your tongue. Your tongue will be unique to you. It'll be something completely different. But once you start talking, don't quit. Just keep going. Don't worry about what it sounds like heard a language before that's nothing but clicks of the tongue, whistles, and it's a known language. You're communicating in a heavenly language. When a child starts talking, it's not fluent English, but the parent knows what's being said. And God's listening to your heart. You're bypassing your brain. You're bypassing your doubt. You're bypassing your unbelief. You're praying from the born again part of you that knows all things. You're communicating without any fear, without any unbelief. I know you don't understand what's being said, but that's the reason it's so important. It's because it's not coming from you. It's the Holy Spirit that's inspiring it. You're praying to God in a language that doesn't have all of the fear and the turmoil and confusion. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Father, thank you for giving everyone the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Brother, you're shaking your head yes now, aren't you? Yes, yes, yes. Thank you, Jesus. Brother, the power of God's all over you. All over you. You know, your life has been a mess in some ways. I don't know you personally, but the Lord just shows me that, man, (laughs) you better fasten your seatbelt. Your life is changing. You are going to see so many miraculous things happen. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we agree. We receive it. Thank you, Father. Let me have your attention here for just a minute. I want you to get the full benefit of what's happened to you. You know, when I first received the Holy Spirit... I honestly doubted if anything had happened to me because I was expecting it to be more dramatic than what it was. And it wasn't. And I had to receive it by faith. And I got into the Word and I just began to renew my mind. And I tell you, the Holy Spirit has just transformed my life. But I wasn't one of those that just went wild when I received it. Some people do. And there's nothing wrong with that. Some people shout, scream, fall on the floor. I don't care what happens. But... 
I didn't experience anything. Some of you may not fully appreciate. Well, let me say it this way. I don't believe any of you fully appreciate what the Holy Spirit has done in your life. You've got to get into the Word and renew your mind and get the full revelation of what's happened. So I've written a book that will help you to understand. Also, when I first prayed for the Holy Spirit, it took me three and a half years before I spoke in tongues. But that's because I was a Baptist. And I was taught against it so much that I just was afraid. And But anyway, I've answered all of those questions. Every I don't think anybody ever had more problems praying in tongues than I did. And I've gotten all my questions answered. I've written it in this book. And I promise you, it will help you to understand what's happened and to speak in tongues and get the full benefit out of this. So I'd like to ask, if you would, to follow Ashley. He's the young man over there with his hand up. And he's got a book that I've written. We're going to give it to every one of you. There's people that will pray with you and help you. And if you would, just go right across the hall. Let them give you this book and pray with you. We want you to get the maximum impact of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's praise God for all of these. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Isn't that great? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you, brother. You're welcome. You're welcome. Man, isn't this great? We had 120, I think it was, last night. And I don't know how many this was, but this is probably 75 or something like that. And so that's just awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Again, we got our prayer ministers up here. And uh, all of these testimonies that I read this morning, those came through these prayer ministers. Hi. You're the seven-year-old that got born again, right? Awesome. Praise the Lord. Isn't that great? Thank you, Jesus. And so all of these miracles that we were talking about, there was deaf ears open, a leg was lengthened, back problems, uh, heal. I forgot what they all were, but it was awesome. And you know what? These are the ones that prayed for him. The reason I say this is because we live in a culture to where it's only the super duper that can pray. And you know what? That, that needs to change. I am not the source. God is the source. These people are operating in the power of God and you need to come and let them lay hands on you. I can't lay hands on every single person, but Jesus can. Jesus can touch you, everyone. And he lives in every one of these. And so we just need to cooperate with it. Amen. This Mercy Santos who was healed of multiple sclerosis. I never prayed with her. She got hold of the word and she got healed. The Trovers, I never prayed with them. They got hold of the word and they got healed. You don't have to have a person. God can use that way, but you need to recognize that God is in all of us. And these people are going to pray a prayer of faith. And if you will let them agree with you, we'll see miracles happen. So if you need prayer, I want you to get up out of your seat and come forward right now and let one of our prayer ministers lay hands on you. We've got people standing at the aisle and they're going to point you towards a person so that we want, we'll do this orderly and please cooperate with them. But if you need prayer, just come and let one of our prayer ministers pray and agree with you. The rest of you remember that we have uh, the services last night and this morning are already duplicated on DVD and on CD. You can get both of them and, um, We're going to be back tonight at 7 o'clock, tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., and then tomorrow night at 6 p.m. We start at 6 on Saturday, not 7. 
So if you come at seven, you'll just barely get in on the start of the preaching. So remember that to come later. Amen. Praise God. God bless you. You're dismissed if you need to be. Thank you, Father. Father, we agree and we just pray for all of these right now. And we believe in the name of Jesus that your power is flowing through every one of our prayer ministers and whatever these needs are. We believe that they are healed now in Jesus' name. We release this supernatural power to flow into their body. And body, we command you to receive your healing. Bodies, you be healed. Satan, we command you to lose people and let them go in the name of the Lord Jesus. We receive these miraculous healings in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Father, we agree. We believe that every single person is being healed in the mighty name of Jesus. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus.